The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 61 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers Annual Number 2 and Time, The Rushing River. This issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Don Heck and Warner Roth, inks by Vince Coletta, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in September of 1968. Again, keeping in mind that this is an annual issue, it's going to be a fairly substantial episode today. We're looking at a 40-page story as compared to the standard 20-page issue that we are used to. So there's a lot going on, and we're going to talk about it. We may smooth over a few of the rougher edges, we'll call them, but in general, we will cover the entire issue in all of its glory. Starting off with the cover, it's a pretty cool cover if a tad busy. I really enjoy all of the bold contrasting colors, especially compared to the black background, but there's a lot going on here. You have all of the current Avengers, all of the original Avengers. They all look really good, but there's a lot of them in a fairly small space, so it kind of adds to that busy sense. One of the things I really enjoy about this is the outlining they use in order to make Black Panther stand out. Obviously, when you have a character dressed in all black against a black background, Some efforts have to be made in order to make them stand out, and I think they do a good job. So I will confess that this issue is going to make me take back most of my complaints about last issue. If you go back and listen, or if you recall, I had a number of complaints about things not making sense or lacking reasons, lacking justifications, things of that nature. And pretty much every complaint I had in that regard was really squared away in this issue. I appreciate that they took the time to flow one story into the other, especially not making it like an obvious cliffhanger two-parter. Right, The issue concluded, and then you roll into this issue and realize that, oh, they're still continuing the story. Wasn't super obvious, and I really like that. Our opening splash page, in particular, does a really good job of setting up the proper tone for the issue. The situation is really awkward, everyone on the street is staring at the Avengers, and it starts to do a really great job of building up the idea that there's just something not quite right since the Avengers have returned from their adventures at Castle Doom. In this particular instance, we pick up with the Avengers walking through New York City, and they're making their way back to Avengers Mansion. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of people staring and stopping and turning, and they're really making more of a scene than a group of costumed Avengers normally do. And as the Avengers are making their way back to the mansion, they're kind of talking about what's going on and how things seem a little bit weird. The fact that their aero car was missing from outside the castle, the fact that Jan fell asleep when at the controls of the time machine and really fell asleep for no good reason. When they get to the mansion, they find that Jarvis is missing and then they inadvertently trip some defense mechanisms and in order to take those 
those mechanisms out to stop them, they throw a record cabinet at these defenses, only for Captain America to realize that they threw that same record cabinet out two years ago. So something seems really off here, and the Avengers are kind of uncomfortable, and they're trying to wrap their heads around this as they're making their way into the mansion. It's, there's a little bit more action, obviously, but it reminds me a little bit of like an Aaron Sorkin walk-in talk, where the characters are discussing things as they're moving from point A to point B. Now, before I move on, one of the things that struck me that I really enjoyed is that the Avengers talk about Jarvis being missing from the mansion, which gives me a nice little warm fuzzy deep down in, in what is left of my cold, cold heart, because... It means that the Avengers are making good on their promise to bring Jarvis back in. If Jarvis is missing and they comment on it, they notice it, it means that to them, Jarvis not being there is out of place, is outside of normal. And so they have accepted him back in and made him, again, be part of their family. And I really like that. Again, reinforcing that Avengers being a family and being a place for second chances and that Jarvis still has a place in that family after everything that happened with Ultron. So as the Avengers make their way into the mansion and through these defenses that they inadvertently trigger, they stumble into the meeting room and find probably one of the most startling things they could find, the original five Avengers sitting at their meeting table. Obviously, one of the most startling things about this, aside from the idea that these Avengers are back and that Hulk is among them, is that two of the original Avengers, if you remember correctly, are Goliath and Wasp. And there are, in fact, a Goliath and Wasp seated at this table. So immediately, Goliath starts kind of freaking out a little bit, while the other Avengers are questioning what's going on, like, why is Thor here? Why is Iron Man here? You know, let's get some answers. Goliath is already up on the governor, spinning it at max RPMs. His nerves are on absolute edge because right in front of him is him. Now, I really do love this page because it reminds me a lot of those original Avengers issues where we saw them at the meetings and, you know, they had this, the chairman every time. And although I think the team had to move past that in kind of the larger perspective, although there are periodic references to it, the idea of the chairman in these democratic meetings really only pops up when Thor and Iron Man are present. But I, I like the idea and, and kind of the memory that this brings. Now, as I mentioned, Goliath is super amped up because there is this person who he thinks is an imposter Hank Pym seated in his costume at an Avengers meeting. So he just instinctively rushes forward and attempts to rip the phony giant man's mask off only to stare into his own face, into the face of a Henry Pym. As a result, Hank is momentarily mentally stunned and the other giant man takes the opportunity to punch Goliath and at this point the new Avengers as we'll call them are attacked by the original Avengers and to be fair this initial fight does not go very well for the Avengers for the new Avengers for one you know they are just thrown off their game by encountering what appear to be genuine copies or genuine Avengers that don't recognize them, that have no memory of them being part of the team. So they're unsure of how to proceed because in, in theory, these are people who are their friends who have suddenly turned on them and they're struggling to understand how they should react. Additionally, to be honest, this original team of Avengers from a brute force standpoint is just considerably more powerful 
powerful than the current Avengers lineup. So with the Avengers thrown off their game and what have you, the original Avengers are able to inflict some pretty serious damage to the current Avengers, such that the the new Avengers are forced into a retreat. Now, I love the fact that the Avengers choose to retreat. While I certainly don't necessarily want to see the heroes of the story lose, I like the fact that they have enough common sense to realize when things are going poorly, and instead of continuing a fight they know they can't win, they recognize the situation, act accordingly, and make a withdrawal. I mean, it's kind of the old idea, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. The Avengers aren't going to win this fight, but that doesn't mean they have to lose every fight. That doesn't mean they have to be knocked out completely. And certainly as we see in this issue, that was absolutely the right decision for the Avengers to make. And in the end, that leaves the original Avengers in Avengers Mansion trying to understand what's going on. And Thor talking about how their presence bodes for nothing but evil, and that these new beings, whoever they are, must be found and conquered, which is an interesting choice of word for an Avenger. I mean, to be fair, the name Avengers is a little bit of an aggressive name. I think the movie does a better job of placing the name into context as opposed to the original comics, but even still, the Avengers were never out trying to conquer. So Thor's choice of words here is very curious, and we'll see how that unfolds over the next couple of panels. But before that happens, we do cut back to the new Avengers, who have escaped into a subway tunnel, and they begin to start putting pieces together, which I think it's really well done how they develop the plot in this issue. And that, for the most part, especially early on, the Avengers really only get things a piece or two at a time, and have to kind of put it together. I appreciate that. It always ends up a little bit, I don't know, it felt kind of Scooby-Doo to me when suddenly everything just instantly falls into place and everyone has the answer. Whereas in this issue, for a significant portion of the issue, they get a little bit of information here, a little bit of information there, and the more information they get, the more what's going on starts to make sense. Now, when we return to the original Avengers, they are once again at their meeting table, and they're seated all looking into, honestly, I think it's supposed to be some kind of screen or kind of projection area. It looks a lot like they're looking into like a giant fire and they're waiting for this image to start forming because they keep referring to a particular individual who might have some information as to what's going on. And as the Avengers discuss and and wait, the image of a person in some kind of armor forms who identifies themselves as the Scarlet Centurion in And he actually describes himself in kind of a cool way as being from the vaporless void between time and space, from the place where eons are as moments. And that's kind of a cool mental image. Now, as we see the Scarlet Centurion, he is kind of broken up and it's a little bit of a ridiculous look on the comic page, but I kind of dig it where they're trying to make the Scarlet Centurion appear to be kind of transparent or maybe holographic. The execution isn't spectacular, but they definitely convey the idea that he is projecting an image from elsewhere. And overall, in addition to the dialogue that's going on by the Centurion and around him and about him adds to this sense of the character's nefarious nature and kind of the ominous nature of this discussion. And as the Avengers talk to Scarlet Centurion about what's going on, he tells them that the new Avengers 
have to be destroyed and speedily. So long as they do, there will be no harm to the timeline. Now, what's interesting here is some of the Avengers kind of balk at this idea, especially the use of the word destroyed. Iron Man says that's not really their scene, and Thor even says, thou, thou didst not command us to kill the others. So, within this conversation, we're starting to get a very different picture of the Avengers than we've seen in the past. And there is something going on far more devious and dangerous than just the original Avengers encountering the new Avengers. I'm also fascinated by the way the Scarlet Centurion addresses the Avengers, where he is almost constantly vacillating between a very demanding and superior attitude, and then almost with the next sentence striking a very conciliatory tone. He gives the Avengers orders, and then he turns around and apologizes for pushing so hard, and that their past sins are forgiven. These kinds of things where where it's really kind of throwing, I think, both the reader and the Avengers off balance, so that you don't 100% buy that he is, I think, as dangerous or as menacing as he actually is. You know, yes, he is a, this commanding figure, and he has these high standards and things that need to be done in his name, but really he's, he's a benevolent character, and he's forgiving and... He has our best interests in mind if we would only listen to him. And I think that's important to keep in mind as we start to see what's been going on with the original Avengers and why they have made the decisions they have made. Once again, we are going to cut back to the new Avengers who are still in the subway tunnel. And again, they're starting to piece together what's been going on. And they've come to the conclusion that, at least in significant part, Doctor Doom's time machine is somehow responsible for what's going on. And that when they became solid in the past, right, remember last issue when they were fighting against Baron Zemo, somehow, in some way, that's where things kind of came off the rails. As they're discussing this, Goliath realizes that he may know of something that could possibly help the Avengers, and it's a device called the Herodotron, which is a device that records and can play back history into people's minds kind of at a high speed so they can they can really intake this data very quickly. It took me forever to get the name right in my head until they explained that it's named after the father of history, who is Herodotus. And then the name kind of fell into place for me. I also like the name referencing Herodotus. But as Goliath is doing this, and he talks about how he worked on this thing a couple of months ago, he begins to kind of mentally unravel a little bit. And he breaks some, and he breaks literally a few things in terms of he smashes his fist into the walls. And I appreciate this for, on a couple of levels. One, the fact that it's Goliath who's the first to break, given what we know about his future mental instability. You know, when that aspect finally gets introduced into his personality, there's so much evidence that really helps back it up that you really buy what's going on. But the other thing is that especially he and Wasp are again under the most pressure given that they have encountered living, breathing duplicates of themselves who are not themselves. So they've been under the most stress and then when Hank starts thinking about the things he's accomplished in his life like working on the Herodotron and things like that and he realizes that maybe those things never happened and that the life that he has lived and the things that he valued have no meaning here it hits him like a wrecking ball and you know it takes him a little bit i also really appreciate the fact that cap kind of 
mentally theorizes that although everyone may break at some point, Cap is probably the most likely to be able to adapt because in a lot of ways, Cap is already living a life like this. While he hasn't directly encountered a doppelganger of himself, certainly he is living in a time and a place where history is radically different than what he knew or accepted, that his current events, when he was unfrozen, are almost two generations in the past, 20 years. So the idea that Cap is this man at a time really kind of helps him adapt to the situation where the past is not what he thought it was. But again, even Cap acknowledges, I may start doubting my sanity if we're here too long too. And with that, the Avengers head to the Herodotron, which is kept at a nearby university. And outside of the university, we find two police officers guarding the entrance. Given that they made such a big deal of how important this device is, and then you see the police standing outside, I really would have figured there would have been more to the Avengers getting into the building. But as soon as Goliath and Wasp take out these two police officers. The next scene is them inside the building with the Herodotron. A scene like this kind of sends me in two different directions. One, it felt like they, they were building it up to be this like tough kind of heist break-in thing that they were going to have to do. And then they just knocked out the cops and it was like there was some build up there that didn't really lead anywhere. And the other half of me goes, yeah, but they're not bogging down the overall plot in order to go into this subplot diversion where they're trying to break into the building and all this. So they're making better use of their page count, I think. But like I said, I'm a little bit torn. I could have maybe stood to have at least a couple more panels of them putting a little bit more effort forth into getting into the, the building and into the Herodotron. Now, once they do, they go ahead and start setting up Captain America into the device so that Goliath can run the controls and Cap can get all the information, which in a lot of ways makes sense because Cap is the most tactically minded of the Avengers and is generally accepted to lead the team here, especially among the new Avengers. Among the original Avengers, once Cap joined the team, although he shone through overall as the leader it was certainly one amongst equals to a much larger extent than it was later on so once cap is all hooked in goliath begins to run the machine and cap gets this flood of images that eventually clarifies and we find ourselves in the final couple of panels of Avengers number two. So all the way back for us, 59 episodes ago, at the end of issue two, where the Avengers have just finished defeating the Space Phantom, who still great villain. Underused, kind of goofy, looks like Nosferatu, but great, great, great villain, great issue. And as Hulk begins to tell off the team after getting all of their barbs and whatnot as the Avengers were fighting amongst themselves and Hulk is getting ready to leave the team here, instead, the Avengers are visited by Scarlet Centurion. And he informs the Avengers that in their current time, the influx of superpowered individuals causes problems and it actually threatens the entire era. Now, to be fair, knowing what we know about superhero comics and all the terrible things that happen, he may not actually be wrong. But as a result, the Avengers stay together. Hulk doesn't leave the team. And the Avengers begin 
to hunt down and disable any super-powered individuals. Now, my one complaint here at this part of the, the backstory, if you will, is the Avengers are awfully willing to trust the Scarlet Centurion. And although they're a newly formed team, they really don't know this guy from Adam. And to a large extent, he's really kind of pushing them into a direction that they wouldn't naturally go towards, and they're kind of uncomfortable going down. The Avengers are here to help people, not to take out other superpowered individuals. And I think in the end, they decide that if this person has come from the future in order to warn them that they are probably doing so for the benefit of mankind and that the risk of being wrong is much less significant than the possible risk and harm that would be done if they didn't listen to the Scarlet Centurion's advice. You know, I I work in engineering, and one of the things we are very, very involved with is occupational risk management. What are the chances of something going wrong? And if something does go wrong, what is the possible severity? And I think that's kind of what the Avengers do here. They have to weigh the harm that they could inflict on a handful of superpowered individuals to the potential harm that those superpowered individuals could cause to the entirety of humanity. And for various reasons, they pick humanity. They pick to take out these superpowered individuals. So they start with the Fantastic Four, but quickly they remove Spider-Man and the X-Men and Namor, Doctor Strange and S.H.I.E.L.D. and Daredevil until the Avengers are the only heroes left. But of course the Avengers don't stop there. They continue on and they fight all of the villains they can find. So we're talking about the Masters of Evil, Red Skull, Magneto, Sandman. It's worth noting that in the villains fight panels. It's a kind of double page spread. It's a little awkward because, at least in the digital copy, the centerfold of the image doesn't line up quite right, and I don't know if that's like some kind of scanning issue, or if that's how the pages were actually drawn, knowing that there would be the centerfold staple there. You know, I don't, I don't know what was going on there, but they don't line up quite right. But also, in the villains page are Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, because again, in this era, in this deviant timeline, as we find out, they never became Avengers. They were always parts of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And eventually, the Avengers are so powerful that they defeat all but the most powerful villains, and even those are driven in kind of into hiding. So we see Doctor Doom and the Mandarin, who certainly are among the most powerful villains of this era, shacked up with Electro and Doc Ock, who I don't really think are in the same league as Mandarin and Doom, but... I guess you can't have like all the most powerful villains because that would make things a little bit too evenly matched. And not only do the Avengers defeat all of the superpowered villains, they also use their power and their authority to force all nations to stop all atomic tests and all scientific inquiry so that no other superpowered individuals can develop and threaten the era. And at this point, with one exception, Scarlet Centurion is is very pleased. He says they've done well men of this era. Aside from the Avengers themselves, pretty much as the Scarlet Centurion refers to it, the cosmic imbalance is nearly corrected, but that five more individuals are going to show up at some point. And once you defeat them, then the timeline will be secured. Now the Avengers have this information, and they've got to decide what to do. Black Panther brings up a really interesting kind of moral and intellectual argument that do they really have the right to the oppose 
the original Avengers merely to safeguard their own existence. Because in a lot of ways, the new Avengers don't exist because the original Avengers still exist and because of the actions they've taken. And for the most part, in some way, shape, or form, they're highly skilled or powered individuals. And and Wasp even follows up with the idea that you know, are they robbing Earth of a, this potential golden age? And obviously that argument doesn't really serve the story. So instead, it kind of gets downplayed by a very rousing motivational speech from Captain America. But unfortunately, I think we lose something not further diving into this debate, right? Black Panther poses the idea and Cap shoots it down almost immediately. And, you know, to a large extent, Cap has a point in that opposing these original Avengers in their current iteration is opposing tyranny. Because the fact that the Avengers are imposing their will and the manner in which they are imposing their will is impinging on basic human rights of, quite honestly, the rest of society. Are they doing it out of well-intentioned motives? Sure. But since I've been quoting old sayings this episode, here's another good one. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's very obvious that these original Avengers in this timeline are very much on the road to hell. They have forgotten their kind of central tenets and duties to humanity to protect them, not just from these supervillains, but to protect their rights and their freedoms. And they have become tyrants. So at this point in the issue, we move on to part two and we get another glorious splash page, which although the opening splash page does a really good job of setting the scene for the issue, this part two splash page really is kind of a, a separate cover all on its own. And were this two different issues and the, the last speech by Captain America, the kind of cliffhanger, the breaking point between the issues, this would have made an amazing cover with the Scarlet Centurion holding this giant hourglass and the original Avengers and the sands of time pouring down onto our, I won't say helpless, but our certainly overwhelmed new Avengers. And I think it uses symbolism to great effect in, again, setting the tone for the issue moving forward. So as we begin the second part of the issue, we find Black Panther and Hawkeye going off to find a piece of Doctor Doom's time machine. And as they're flying to their destination, we get a little bit more plot filler here explaining how Scarlet Centurion interfered with events last issue so that he caused the world to exist as it does in this issue. Unfortunately, I think the explanation is a little bit weak as the Avengers theorize that all of these problems that they've encountered were due to the fact that there were two Avengers in the timeline when they rematerialized in the past, when they went from being these observing ghost-like characters to actually existing there. Because it's one of those things that the Avengers and Marvel Comics in general, they postulate here and then they throw out the window and, and really don't deal with again. If you look at the last few years of comics, we had all new, all different X-Men, which was a fantastic title, but it starred the time-displaced original X-Men. So for a lot of those X-Men, they existed at the same time as their counterparts. Obviously, original Jean Grey was dead when young Jean Grey was in in the present time and not too long after that Scott Summers died but for a period of time four of the five 
occupied the same time, and that was no problem. No weird paradoxes, anything like that, were developed by simply existing in the same timeline. It's kind of a weak explanation that really has no bearing on the future of the Marvel Universe. But it does manage to fill some of the time while Black Panther and Hawkeye make their way to this construction site where the piece of Doom's time machine is located. And it's very clear that this is a setup. There's no good reason for this piece of equipment to be at this construction site other than they claim that it was meant to be buried beneath this new building that's going up. But like I said, Hawkeye correctly assumes that it is a setup and just as he does, a beam comes flying at the two of them, followed very closely by the Hulk. Now, what I really enjoy about this particular portion of the issue, this fight, is Hawkeye and Black Panther tend to be two of the more acrobatic characters. Obviously, Hawkeye with his circus background and Black Panther with his cat-like theme. The two of them really are jumping and dodging and doing various acrobatic moves in their fight. It makes for a really fun, great fight. It's a lot of action movie kind of stuff and it makes for a, a good read, you know? Now, it's pretty obvious that the original Avengers, when they fought the new Avengers, you know, one team against the other, the original Avengers had the upper hand. By breaking into these smaller groups, the new Avengers are able to exploit their knowledge of the various weaknesses of the original Avengers and therefore combat them more effectively. For one, Hawkeye is ready with an anti-metallic acid that he fires on Iron Man and it begins to dissolve parts of his suit. Right, so that's a very fitting weapon to use against a character like Iron Man. And if you didn't know about Iron Man and his suit and his weaknesses, then you wouldn't combat it very effectively. Now, the Hulk, on the other hand, I would like someone to explain to me what happens here. Because Hulk is defeated by Hawkeye firing an arrow at him that circles around him, making this really heinous noise that causes him to transform back into Banner. Even Hawkeye and Black Panther express surprise and basically say that it was just dumb luck that this worked. To me, that is really kind of weak writing. It's very deus ex machina, kind of, we need to defeat Hulk, so here we're just going to have this random thing do it, and I don't particularly care for it. The way they took out Iron Man, it works great. The way they address other Avengers works great. The way they addressed Hulk, nonsensical and kind of garbage. So with... Iron Man and Hulk out of the picture, Black Panther and Hawkeye are able to collect their piece of Doom's time machine, and they head back to their prescribed meeting place, while we shift our scene to a fight between Thor and Captain America that opens with Thor striking Cap's shield and a spectacular sound effect. And one of the things I love about this fight is the epic use of sound effects. If you think about it, you've got Captain America with his metal shield and Thor with Mjolnir, and the two of them constantly colliding. There should be some really impressive sound effects. And I think our artistic team really delivers on the use of those sound effects and makes it feel like you're hearing this giant metal hammer slamming into this giant metal shield with the appropriate amount of force. Now, as I said, I don't really care for how they dealt with Hulk, but the way they deal with Thor makes a lot of sense to me. It's a little bit on the nose, but the fact that Cap basically decides to play keep away with Mjolnir is entertaining to say the least. So what happens here is that over their time together in the proper 616 timeline, Captain America has realized 
that Thor insists on having Mjolnir come back to him all the time, that he can't be away from it. So Cap decides to figure out what happens if I keep him away from Mjolnir. And, as we know, Thor will turn back into Donald Blake. So, as the 60 seconds runs out, Thor turns back into Donald Blake, and Captain America is able to collect his piece of Doctor Doom's time machine. And we see him loading this piece of the device onto his aero car through the eyes of Scarlet Centurion watching him on a television monitor. And he basically implies that this is all kind of a setup. Things are going the way he wants them to. Now, one thing I will say about the Scarlet Centurion here is that I think he looks much better as a visage, as a hologram or whatever he is, because in person, like in the flesh, his armor just doesn't work, especially his chest piece is basically like a corset. So he's almost like a, a more muscular hooded and, and cowled version of like Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show, or probably more accurately Rocky from the Rocky Horror Picture Show during the floor show portion of the, the film. He's this big hulking muscular character in these kind of weird armored pants and a black and purple corset. And it just looks kind of weird. Maybe if his arms and upper torso weren't bare, if it were some kind of like shirt or something underneath, it would work better. But man, it just looks like he's wearing a corset. It removes a significant amount of the menace. I have a hard time taking him seriously as, as a villain right now. We've seen Hawkeye and Black Panther take on Hulk and Iron Man. We've seen Cap take on Thor. So on both sides, that leaves Wasp and Goliath to face off against themselves. In what is definitely the weirdest of the fights, and I don't mean that in like a the fight was awkward and odd, but certainly the, again, most disconcerting, most odd and, I mean, weird fights is really is it's the best way to describe it. One of the, actually the weirdest things here to me is that it seems like the characters are more extreme. And what I mean by that is like Thor is always kind of borderline good, borderline bad. A lot of times Thor will do what he thinks is the right thing. Maybe it's not or Thor will get upset and do something he shouldn't do. Whereas, in general, Wasp is really the heart of the team and one of the, the best characters on the team, one of the most well-intentioned people on the team. Of the original Avengers in this story, Thor is basically the same, but kind of evil, kind of a little bit darker. Wasp, on the other hand, is like super evil. Like, Wasp threatens the other Wasp, our Wasp, with, I'm taking you down dead or alive. Specifically, she says, we'll see who's left alive when the dust clears. Like, original Wasp is super aggressive and evil, where new Wasp is sweet and nice and good-hearted. So it's like, they, it's like they take the person and just kind of flip them across a mirror. So they go from, if they're at the extremes, they go from one extreme to the other. If they're closer to the center, they go just a little bit center right, a little bit center left. And I think this, that makes this one of the more interesting fights. Now, of course, Giant Man and Goliath are pretty evenly matched, with the exception of current Goliath really has a little bit more fighting experience, and he's got a bit more stamina, right? With the original Avengers, they've been pretty successful every time, and really in a fairly small amount of time. The new Avengers 
have not always been as successful, and they've certainly had to fight their way out of situations a lot more. They've had to have a lot more stamina in order to get out of some of the situations they found themselves in. So, in the end, it comes down to Goliath outlasting Giant Man. And with that, the Avengers are able to travel back to Castle Doom and reassemble the time machine. Now, when they do, it appears as though Scarlet Centurion uses the device to kind of free himself from wherever he is and travel back in time and decides that he is going to destroy the Avengers himself. Since the original Avengers failed, he is now going to take care of the Avengers. And the first thing he does is attacks Captain America and turns him into Capsicle version 2.0. To be fair, I think it's kind of a fitting and a kind of ironic punishment for Cap, and it made me chuckle quite a bit to myself. So as the majority of the Avengers engage with the Scarlet Centurion and keep him occupied, Goliath, in his Ant-Man form, hitches a ride on one of Hawkeye's arrows and gets inside of Doom's time travel device. And with it, he turns the entire chamber, not just the little platform, into a time travel device and sends Scarlet Centurion back into the void where he came from. And on top of that, he basically forces the Avengers back into their native timeline. It's not super clear, even using, you know, fuzzy science fiction, comic book science, how exactly this all occurs. But the general idea is that they're able to undo those things that Scarlet Centurion did while they were in the past and reset the timeline back to its original path. And as the Avengers travel back to their time and things begin to reset, the Avengers discuss how they are going to have one hell of a story for their records. And we get in the Marvel Universe what is effectively the greatest deus ex machina available to us, the intrusion of Watu the Watcher. It's a little funny, Watu looks a little off-model in this, but he introduces himself as the Watcher, and as fans of the Marvel 616 will note, Watu is the Watcher for Earth and for the, the Marvel Universe. And Watu explains that basically everything here is being reset and even goes so far as to explain who the Scarlet Centurion really is and that he is in fact the man who will be known as Pharaoh Ramatut and more importantly to the Avengers, the man who will eventually be known as Kang the Conqueror. So, in the end, Avengers Annual Number 2 is a Kang the Conqueror story, which makes me so, so, so very happy. Because, man, do I love me some Kang. Now, of course, obviously, it's not a Kang story in the traditional sense. It is a story involving one of Kang's other timeline, other history, other portions of his timeline personas, of which there are many. We have mentioned some before. Rama Tut, Kang the Conqueror. We now have the Scarlet Centurion. We also have the character Immortus, though that has not actually been identified in the Marvel Universe at this point, but we will find out in the future that that is the case. And again, it really kind of fits Kang's MO, going back in time and messing with the timeline and trying to make things more to his liking. Obviously, the less superpowered individuals there are, the better off for Kang. The more the Avengers trust him, the better off for Kang. All of this is manipulating so that he can conquer the past. Now, what I don't like about this portion of the story here is that in the last like two pages we get a lot of explanation through exposition it's nowhere near as bad as things were like during don heck's first couple of stories where it was a whole lot of action and then the last like three panels we tried to cram in an ending and an explanation but we probably could have gone another page or two and fleshed things out a little bit more 
so that we didn't have to rely quite so heavily on the exposition by Watsu here. So with that, the Avengers find themselves back in Castle Doom, basically at the end of last issue, and they have a, a conversation similar to what they had before about how Cap is sad to have watched Bucky die again, but is glad to at least have some level of closure, and then the Avengers make their way to their Arrow car in order to return home. And that's where the issue ends, at least the main story. Now, there's two things I want to talk about here. One is that I love how well this issue does of comparing and contrasting the original Avengers to the new Avengers because the teams are very different and although it can be reasonably argued that the original team is more powerful as I mentioned from a brute force standpoint the current Avengers lineup is far more balanced they fight much better as a team and they make up for their lack of strength you know physical prowess by being more cunning and more intelligent and thinking their way through problems a lot more. One of the examples of that is how the new Avengers are able to exploit the weaknesses of the original Avengers in order to win those fights. While the execution in a couple of places is a little bit on the loose side, it serves again as a contrast of the relative weaknesses of the teams. The original Avengers are super powerful, super strong, but their potential weaknesses like Thor turning back into Donald Blake or Hulk turning back into Banner or Iron Man's chest piece, they're far more debilitating weaknesses. Whereas the current Avengers team, again, doesn't have a lot of that brute force power and even to a large extent presence that the original Avengers have. I mean, let's be honest, Thor and Hulk are a presence. If they show up at your house, you know they're there. Black Panther shows up or Wasp shows up. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Probably not. Right? There's a lot more skill and cunning involved, but for the most part, they're able to use those abilities no matter what. Whereas under the right circumstances, you can disable two to three of the original five Avengers without a whole lot of effort if you know what you're doing. And I think that's where the current team that we're dealing with here, the new Avengers, so to speak, really finds a lot of its strength. Now, of course, being an Avengers annual, you get a lot of bonus content at the end of the issue. So there are some fun pinups and there's a whole big two-page Avengers member splash kind of page pinup. That's really cool. And then we get a little mini story called Avengers Assemble, which is effectively Roy Thomas, John Basima, and Don Heck collaborating together in order to write an Avengers story. It's really goofy, it's very self-aware, and it's pretty entertaining. If you get a chance to read it, it's definitely worth a few minutes. And you know, it's one of those little tiny treasures that you get periodically in an annual issue or, you know, you maybe you get as part of a, a big event. I remember it's now probably a couple of years ago when Marvel was in the middle of Secret Wars. One of my favorite writers, Jonathan Hickman, did a Secret Wars parody issue for fun and, and basically poking fun at himself for not knowing how to finish Secret Wars at one point in the process. It's things like that that are just a lot of fun and really worth checking out if you like to dig a little bit deeper into how the sausage is made. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we'll be taking a look at Avengers number 57 and the first appearance of Vision in Behold the Vision. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day.
Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.